I'm going to begin this morning with, if you will excuse me for a moment, a little bit of chemistry, which might seem a little bit odd. Um, Back when I was in school, we had an excellent chemistry teacher, a really good chemistry teacher, Mr. John Hickey. And in one of his lessons, he was introducing this reaction. This is propene. Sorry, just go back one. This is propene and hydrogen bromide. And if you're going to react propene with hydrogen bromide together, there are two potential products, theoretically, that could form. The hydrogen atom could be added either side of this double bond, and so could the bromine atom. They could go onto this carbon or this carbon. And these are the two possibilities that could form. And generally speaking, you only ever get the one that you see on the left-hand side. That tends to be the majority. This is described by something called Markovnikov's rule. The carbon atom that has the less hydrogens to begin with, whoops, sorry, I'll go back one. The carbon atom that has the less hydrogens to begin with gets the bromine. The one that has more hydrogens gets more. He who has gets. He who has gets. So in Markovnikov's rule, it's a little bit like the parable of the talents. The one who starts out with more ends up getting more. And I remember our chemistry teacher at the time, knowing that I was the the leader of the the Christian Union, and he asked me, so how do you explain this one? And I don't think I gave a very, very satisfactory explanation at the time. It seems unjust that the one who starts out with more ends up getting more. And this is something that we see repeatedly in the natural world. Um, This is sibling rivalry among ospreys. Um, I'll let this play throughout. Um, You'll see that there are three osprey chicks here in the nest. One is lying down at the moment. You can see that the mother on the the far um, left-hand side, just barely in in view, feeding the chicks. And you'll notice that one is getting the vast majority of the food. Notice that the other two don't really get a look in. As that continues to play, you'll notice that the other two chicks get really bullied. You see, the chick that hatches out first starts getting food first. It grows first. The other two are almost like an insurance policy. If there is enough food available, they will all get fed, they will all reach adulthood, they will all survive. If there isn't, then only the one that hatches out first is likely to survive. He who has gets. Whoever has will be given more, and to the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Our gut reaction is to think this seems very unjust. Is this what this parable is all about? Is it a justification of some type of exploitative capitalism? Is it a vindication of risky investment banking? Is that what this parable is about? Well, firstly, just because something happens in the natural world doesn't mean that that's what should happen. Albert Einstein put this clearly back in 1941. He said, science is very good at explaining what happens in the world. Science is very good at ascertaining what there is in the natural world, but not what should be. And outside of its domain, value judgments of all kinds remain necessary. So just because this happens doesn't mean it's what should be happening. But, nevertheless, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God is like this. In what sense, then? In what sense? Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, um, writing in the first of his three volumes of Jesus of Nazareth, describes how the struggle to understand correctly, to understand the parables correctly, has been present throughout the history of the church. This isn't something that's necessarily immediately obvious. 
It would be helpful probably if we turn back, and if you want to look back in the Pew Bibles with you, thankfully there are in the pews this week, not like the last time I was preaching. Um, If you want to turn back to Matthew chapter 13, it's useful to look again at the purpose of the parables, the intention of the parables. Looking at verse 11, um, chapter 13, verses 11 to 13, Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it hasn't been given to them. It hasn't been given to them. This is speaking to his disciples. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Hey, familiar words? This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So we put together the parable of the talents in the context of the purpose of the parables, What is this about? In that context, I think it's fairly clear that Jesus is speaking about knowledge, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So I think primarily that is what this parable is speaking about. Those who receive knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, those who receive knowledge of an understanding of the gospel, of the message of salvation, and what do they do with it? What do they do with it? Look again at Luke chapter 8. Verse 18. Again, we have a very similar reference. This occurs in the context of people hiding a lamp under a bowl, hiding away light, knowledge, hiding away what, what they have. And again, Jesus is saying, take care then how you hear. So this is referring again to knowledge, to understanding. Take care then how you hear. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what he thinks he has, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. And this refers very clearly, I think, to the Pharisees, those who would seem to have knowledge of salvation, who would have a a sort of a hypocritical outward sign of religiosity. What they seem to have, this isn't even necessarily referring to debt, that could be taken away from them. So I think when we're thinking about the parable of the talents, keep all of this in mind. What is the purpose of the parables? Revealing knowledge to those who are willing to receive knowledge. If you look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9, we have something very similar. In Proverbs chapter 9, we read, Give instruction to a wise person, and he will grow in understanding. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Those who have more will be given, they will increase in understanding. Now, this isn't to say that people who might have diminished mental capabilities are somehow looked down upon. Clearly not. Jesus also proclaims a, in, in praise in Luke's gospel. Um, he's, he, he, he's, when the disciples come back, telling how they were able to perform various miracles, how they're proclaiming the gospel, Jesus says, I, procl- I praise you. Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So clearly it's not a a, a sort of an elevation of intellectual powers or anything like that. Even little children are capable of receiving the gospel and are held up as an example in Christ's teaching. But for those who have received knowledge, they have to be using it wisely and then they will gain in wisdom and understanding. It's also reflected, I think, in what James is saying James, when he's writing in his epistle, says, 
Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There is a responsibility to carry out what we hear. Now, what about us? What about us here in Fitzroy? Well, over the past several weeks, Steve has been looking at a series, um, Life in All Its Fullness, 1010. We've had six sermons already dealing with the theme of life in all its fullness, six out of ten. If you give instruction to a wise person and he will be yet wiser, there is a kind of a preparedness to receive more. In the world of science, often a lot is down to luck, whether or not a particular experiment works or a particular strategy is going to work. But it's not just luck. And the person who probably expressed this best was Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur wrote, said, Dans les chances de l'observation, les hasards ne favorisent que les esprits préparés. Which is often rendered in English as fortune favors the prepared mind. Not an exact translation, but often that's how it comes down into us in English. Fortune favors the prepared mind. Those who are prepared, those who are truly receiving what they know, those are whom fortune will then benefit. So, back to us in Fitzroy. We've had a series, we're going through a series with Steve, looking at life in all its fullness. Now, I've attempted to condense some of what we've heard in this series already into about nine minutes. Bearing in mind, Steve said quite a bit, this is going to be a little bit like airport Steve. And it's going to be fairly intense. But sit back and watch this, just to recap on what we've heard so far. What we have received... Not everyone may have been here every week. I wasn't here every Sunday, but we can all listen to it online if we're able to as well. So, over to Steve. Whoa! Jesus comes and he says, I have come in order that you might have life. Life in all its fullness. Is that an invitation that any of us can possibly not respond to? Life in all its fullness. To serve ourselves well we needed to serve others. And I suppose as I was walking towards church house, I thought, well, that's a good, clean, respectable discipleship of Presbyterian boys. We're not going to engage with the prostitutes on the step as we go out in the morning. But before I got to church house, I had smashed that clean and clinical system of discipleship. And in my head I thought, Jesus spoke to prostitutes. And yet today, as I walked out of my front door, I was unable to. I was ill-equipped to. It wasn't something I could have done even if they had given me eye contact. Which then led me into thinking, well, what have all those discipleship courses been about? Or what have all those conferences been about? Because in the gospel, Jesus spends his time with prostitutes. But I'd never been told how to speak to one. And you can see where I'm starting to ask, what is the discipleship that we're handed in this clean and clinical discipleship? And where is the messiness of a following Jesus as we find him in the scriptures, into a messy, risky, and dangerous kind of life. Because the way that the disciples come into this understanding of grace in a real, not a theological form, but in an experiential form, is when they start following. Jesus doesn't say to them, understand grace. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, now, I want to give you uh, a little passage that Paul's not going to write, actually, for another 60 or 70 years. But it's going to explain to you that it's not by works, it's by... He says, follow me. 
follow me as we look at the Gospels seems to be the way in. And it seems to me that to connect into this life in all its fullness, to connect into this world of God, this world of the divine, that follow me and grace are the one movement. We receive the, the grace by the following. The following is only possible by the grace. So we come to positionally be friends of God. We come positionally to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, as Paul puts it in Romans. But in the same instance, we become followers. And suddenly our positions in the world shift. We're no longer where we want to be ourselves. In the safe places, or the respectable places, or the places that will best serve us. These commandments are all there. But if you love the Lord your God, if you love the Lord your God, if your connection is a worshipful connection, if your connection is a loving relationship, then these things will be easier to be able to put into practice. It's not as onerous when you have to do something as when you long or want to do something because you love the other person or God. When we give God his place in the universe, when we give God his place in our community, when we give God his place in our lives, and when we say we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, then how we behave towards one another, and how we behave towards neighbor, or alien coming into our land, will be different because of that love relationship that we have with God. And it becomes our identity. We are not what we believe We are what we love. We can believe all kinds of things about God and he might not be our priority. But when we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, there is our identity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Familiar, but self-shattering, radical, revolutionary. We are not what we believe, folks. We are what we love. And that's what the world will see. What do we love? Leisure, pleasure, comfort and choice or the Lord our God? An inner something that allowed us to have a perspective on the world that is different than most people see the world. And I think the fruit of the Spirit is that. The Holy Spirit works within our lives to rip up how it is and to give us a chance to see how it can be. Sin tends to push everything outwards towards the periphery. Other people... God, the world, society, nature. And what Paul's saying here, among many, many other things in Galatians 5, is that when the Holy Spirit comes and blows through your lives, with that long, slow, consistent, daily dent, we get a different way of looking at the world. We get a different way of looking at ourselves. We get a different way of looking at other people. We have a different way of looking at God and nature and society. And we start to live a life that the Holy Spirit blows through, creates within our lives, that heals the gaps and the wounds and the open sores, that sews the fabric of society back together again. Think about it. Love, joy, peace, patient tolerance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things close the gaps. These things reach out to others. These things close the gaps within ourselves and people within ourselves and God, within ourselves and society and nature, and whatever we see as the greater part that we live in. The Holy Spirit longs to blow through and to bring this fruit of the Spirit within our lives. One fruit, all aspects. A harvest within us as individuals, a harvest within us as a faith community, so that we might be gap closers and lovers of neighbour.
in the world that we live in. Martin Luther said, There is no tree that bears fruit for itself, but it offers its fruit to another. Indeed, no creature lives for itself and serves itself apart from humankind and the devil. The sun does not shine for itself, and water does not flow for itself. All gifts have flowed and flow from Christ to us. He has clothed us and acted in our favour as if he were truly what we are. Gifts should flow from us to those who need them. Gifts should flow from us to those who need them. Because in the laws of the cosmos, Martin Luther said, nothing is for itself. The sun, it's not for itself. The water doesn't flow for itself. The trees don't bear fruit for itself. And so humans, we're not here for ourselves. We find our deepest meaning when we're engaging and serving others in this body of Christ image that is constant throughout the New Testament. And I remember reading these lines in verse 5 of Romans 12 and thinking, what does that mean? So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. And wait for this. And each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. I am your possession. You are my possession. But we're given this opportunity. We're given this opportunity to be part of 1010. Where we find who we are when we give ourselves away. And unless we're giving ourselves away, well then, I'd stay in bed on a Sunday. Because I'm not that good. And I would do something else for your Sunday. Because you're not going to find yourself out in the other room. You're not going to find yourself out in whatever else you're doing. You will only find yourself when we're involved in the body of Christ, giving ourselves to one another. The gifts that God has given us are not for ourselves. They are to be given away. We belong to one another. Josephine has brought into her home ten homeless street kids. They live with her. Maggie is funding two of her siblings through college as she was funded through college. Why is it that after the Second World War, we were the nation that brought so many refugees in, but we've just voted Brexit so as we don't have any more in? The more we have, the more difficult it is to bring ten homeless kids into your house. Maybe, 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 maybe we would live the subversive, radical nature of those words. Sincere love, sharing with those in need, hospitality, living in harmony with each other, willing to associate with those from a lower position, not repaying evil for evil. They they could be warm and fuzzy words, but they are actions that brings into our world through the people of God. I too can hear the gospel of the kingdom as good news because it is good news. But first I need to admit its radical nature and not try to tame it to endorse my inherited entitlement. Do not be conformed. Be transformed. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are we conformed? Are we transformed? We, as a congregation, as a church, have been given a lot over the last few weeks. And my challenge to all of us, and myself included, is what are we doing with it? Obviously, there's an awful lot of teaching packed into nine minutes there. This is not your classic one-point or three-point sermon. But the main point I want to get across is what are we doing with what we've received, what we've received as a congregation? To be clear again, the parable of the talents is not about exploitative capitalism. In its original context, that's very clear. The parable that immediately follows it, the parable of the sheep and the goats, deals with Jesus' concern for the least in society. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. 
That's the parable that immediately follows on. I'm not going to dwell on that because Steve's going to be discussing that parable in a few weeks' time. If you look at the very similar parable in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the ten miners. It's not the same parable, but it has a lot of similarities to the parable of the talents. But look now at the context in which this parable occurs. The parable of the talents is delivered on the Mount of Olives. This parable is delivered on the road to Jerusalem in Jericho in Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, people say about Jesus when he goes into Zacchaeus' house, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But when Zacchaeus offers to give away, if he's defrauded anybody, to pay them back fourfold, to give his money to the poor, Jesus' response is, today salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a child, a son of Abraham. And then he begins to tell this parable, because people think the kingdom of God, chapter 19 of the Gospel according to Luke, verse 11, because people suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Within the context in which the parable of the talents occurs, it's preparing people for the end times. A lot of parables preparing people for the end times, but also the warning that it's not going to appear immediately, but be ready anyway. Be ready anyway. The theologian uh, Tom Torrance, um, whose family I got to know well in Edinburgh and who who I met also when he was in the nursing home, he described how the parable of the talents is one of a suite of parables which describes space, how there is space available and time available for the proclamation of the gospel. We are given time, we are given time for the proclamation of the gospel. And that is the context into which this occurs. And what of the talents again? Often nowadays in our vocabulary we tend to think of talents often as abilities. Originally they would have been referring to a weight, the Hebrew word kikar, talanta in the Greek, then in the New Testament. A weight which then becomes associated with a sum of money and then gradually in our thinking associated with, with our abilities. But I think also it has an association with knowledge and our embracing of the gospel. So Karl Barth, the uh, German theologian, describes how what is entrusted, what is entrusted in the context of the parable of the talents is his gospel and his spirit. In Karl Barth's understanding, that's primarily what this is about. And I think it makes sense in the context. Similarly, when Paul is writing to Timothy, his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 14, he describes how he should guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you, referring to the knowledge and teaching he's received by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. This is speaking, I think, primarily of spiritual things, but that's not to exclude that we should be generous and willing to share with what we've received. Similarly, when Paul is writing his previous letter to Timothy, chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, just find it now if people want to follow with me, they can do. Just at the very end, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may hold on to what is truly life, to that which is truly life. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may, t- may take hold of that which is truly life, life in all its fullness, ten ten life. Life in all its fullness. And he continues again, O Timothy, guard the good deposit, guard the deposit entrusted to you. But guarding it not in a way that is burying it in the ground, in a way that is hiding it away, that it doesn't benefit anybody else. There is a tendency, and there has long been a tendency sometimes within churches, to be concerned about compromise to be concerned about who, what, what impressions you might give who you're talking to. Steve alluded to earlier in a previous sermon, which I showed you a clip, about uh, the concern of a reputation, what might people think if you were talking to prostitutes. That sort of pharisaical attitude, which unfortunately can still persist in the church. Judgments made are based on who you're associating with. And of course, Jesus was the victim of these kinds of judgments as well. Sometimes within the church there could be a siege mentality, a concern excessively with purity of the message, but a lack of concern about proclamation of the gospel to the, to the wider world. And I think for people who have that particular view, the parable of the talents is a challenge, a warning. It's something that should really send shudders in a way that reflects the message from Zephaniah that we heard earlier, being prepared again for the end times. So... Fitzroy, we have talents. We have huge talents in terms of the abilities of people in this congregation. We are one of the wealthiest parts of the world as well. In the youth club at uh, Flipside, we had uh, Johnny from Stand By Me talking to the young people. And uh, serendipitously, our lecture readings for today are the Parable of the Talents and Zephaniah's first chapter. Johnny was sharing with us the Parable of the Talents even on Friday night talking about the context of how we are some of the wealthiest in the world and what are we doing with the wealth that we receive, illustrating this with packets of Haribos and also Monopoly money. We have received a lot. What are we doing with it? Both materially, both in terms of our abilities, but also, I think, especially in terms of what we've received of the knowledge of the gospel. How are we sharing it?